So like all of us, we're shocked and saddened by the attack on Israel, and as of this recording, war with Hamas. Officials and aid groups warn of a worsening humanitarian crisis where escalating violence has already killed thousands of people and wounded and displaced many others. And that's a longer conversation that we're not going to have on this podcast. We pray for peace and encourage you to reach out to the people in your respective communities to check in. But we know many of you might want to know how you can help. The internet, particularly social media, is awash with misinformation, so it's especially important to verify that your contributions are going to organizations that are legit as well as effective. The Federal Trade Commission recommends searching charities' names alongside words like compliant, review, rating, and scam to see if any red flags come up. You can also run a search on websites like Charity Watch and Charity Navigator. We'll put some links in the show notes, in particular to an NPR story that has a few recommended causes that do seem legit. Beyond that, we weren't really sure what to do here. After all, we're just a podcast. Uh, but as you know, I host another podcast, Quarantine Comics, where fellow nerd Ryan Joe and I talk about some great comics that go well beyond superheroes. Ryan's made more than a few appearances on Modern Minorities, so he should be no stranger to you. By now, you already know how I feel about comics. It's a transformative media of many stories like film, television, books, and even podcasts. And earlier, we re-aired our Quarantine Comics episode about the graphic memoir, How to Understand Israel in 60 Days. But honestly, there are a number of minority perspectives that we have yet to really cover on this podcast, including the plight of the Palestinian people. Years ago, graphic journalist Joe Sacco traveled to Israel and crossed over into the occupied territories of Palestine, creating a series of comics compiled into an award-winning graphic novel of the same name, Palestine. Look, it's easy to ignore the plight of a people on the other side of the world, but we hope you'll take a few minutes to hear our chat about this moving work and check it out wherever you get your favorite books. So in this moment, it felt appropriate for us to share a chat about this important work that is related but distant to the ongoing crisis that is unfolding in the Middle East. Because while war and peace are not easy things to resolve, listening, learning, and reading with an open heart and mind is. So I hope you'll listen and learn from our chat about Joe Sacco's groundbreaking graphic novel, Palestine. And check it out wherever you get your favorite books. But most of all, we hope for peace as our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Israel and Gaza. I just hope we can get that we're talking about this week's comic without being canceled. Is it because we're reading Joe Sacco's Palestine? Yes, and it deals with a totally uncontroversial subject that we're both really equipped to talk about. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes heading into occupied territory. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. This week, we're reading Palestine, Joe Sacco's seminal work of cartoon journalism. Tell me more about yeah, Al Nakba literally translates to the catastrophe, referring to the destruction of the Palestinian homeland in May of 1948, which led to the mass exodus of at least 750,000 Arabs from Palestine. While for many historians the process began decades earlier, to many in the region it refers to the ongoing persecution, displacement, and occupation of the Palestinian people, both in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, as well as in the Palestinian refugee camps throughout the region. All in all, a super shady situation. 
Yeah. So to commemorate Al-Nakba, we're reading Palestine, Joe Sacco's seminal work of cartoon journalism. From December of 1991 to January of 1992, a young cartoon journalist named Joe Sacco would travel to Israel and occupied Palestine and embed himself with the Palestinian people to hear their stories and see how they lived their everyday lives. Sacco wanted to get around the sanitized story the Western media was portraying to emphasize the history and the plight of the Palestinian people as a group and as individuals. The book was actually published as a nine-issue run by Fantagraphics from 1993 to 1995, with a graphic novel adaptation published later to a much wider audience. Palestine has been the recipient of the American Book Award, was named as one of the top 100 English language comics of the last century. Sacco has since gone on to publish numerous other works of cartoon journalism covering the Middle East, Bosnia, Serbia, and the Native American plight, for which he's received recognition from Time Magazine. He's won an Eisner. He's won a Harvey and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And that makes it required reading. Absolutely. So in Palestine, Sacco positions himself as the Westerner confronting a reality unfamiliar to most Americans at the time, concentrating on his personal experience and perspective, as well as the stories of the people that he encounters, with some light history thrown in for good measure. Conversations are documented over tea, roadblocks, police action, taxis, and checkpoints and curfews, which became all too familiar set pieces in Sacco's narrative journey. So, Ryan, once again, this is another heavy but necessary read. How'd you find it? Yeah, so coming from the perspective of somebody who knows about the Israel and Palestine conflict through Western news, it was an eye-opener for me, which you mentioned earlier about Sacco's goal to really zoom in and look at how this impacts the Palestinian people. That's that's what he does. Very much, you are right in people's faces. It's not a, a bird's-eye view that you normally get when you read the, when you read the, the news articles about it. It is... Up close and personal, Sako is interviewing people about their perspectives. And what you get is such a divergence of perspectives. People who were wronged in very in different ways, who reacted in, in different ways, who have completely different perspectives. That's the other thing. Like there is just like such a variety of of opinions when you look at all of the different people who all of the different Palestinians who are impacted, which really should go without saying. But one of the things that this really hammered home to me is how much of a clusterfuck this situation is and how, honestly, I don't see any avenue for there ever being anything remotely like peace. The wounds and the slights and the offenses and the assaults, they just, they've just been going on for too long. There's just no way that there can be anything peaceful that comes from this situation. <sighs> What's frustrating about this book, it's not the book, right? It's not the book's fault. Um, this book this, was written in the 90s. Yeah. And yeah, right. what were we doing in the 90s? Reading Wizard Magazine and Image Comics, right? And back then it wasn't, I, I would say it. the plight of the Palestinian people, maybe it's not in vogue, but I think people are more aware of it today. Or maybe I've just grown up into a progressive, informed, you know, world traveling guy. But like the shit is the same if not worse 30 years on 1991 and 1990 pre-9-11 right i mean yeah before yeah, all of that rabid prejudice against it was there right but way but before that the prejudice against muslims went completely rabid yeah it, it's just i don't know man it's there is a hopelessness to it but 
And again, it's it's really hard to separate myself from call it uh, Western audiences, because I really I do feel in my heart of hearts that there is a greater awareness of the Palestinian plight. Now, is there a hopelessness to the solution? I don't know. I do think awareness in journalism solves things. But yeah, I hate to bring it back to what's going on in the world today. To be clear, Palestine is happening in the world today, but with Ukraine, but we're all clenching our pearls about what's going on in Ukraine and what is happening there is terrible. Terrible shit has been happening in Palestine since the 70s, right? To read this, and I had a, a close friend also named Ryan from New York. His sister, he's Jordanian, Palestinian, he's Jordanian Arab, and his sister went back and I think married a guy in Gaza. And so she goes back, but her husband can't come out, right? And so my friend Ryan, other Ryan, has been to Ramallah, and he's spoken about these things and the taxicab situations of like getting in, getting out before curfew, checkpoints, all of these things. It's a way of life. And there's like this moment where Sako talks. There's so many moments in this book, but where Sako talks about if someone feels like they have absolute power, they're going to behave a certain way. And if someone feels absolute powerlessness, yeah. how are they going to behave? And it's that scene with the little boy, right? That's being assaulted by the police. But you do see that enacted throughout the book, right? I mean, yeah. the Israelis have absolute power, both in terms of their arms also in terms of the law and the army that's backing them. And of course, the Palestinians have none. And, and there is a complexity to how people react. Like not every Israeli, of course, is, is evil. But definitely in terms of the stories that Sacco is getting are from Palestinians who've often been tortured, who've been arrested, who've been thrown in prison camps. So of course, their relationship with the Israelis is incredibly fraught. But even one thing I actually credit Sacco for, even then, he's he's still trying to peel back more layers, right? So you have that this sequence where somebody is talking about his time in a prison camp. And the way the Israelis would cycle out the soldiers. So there'd have to be soldiers that would come in and they would mm-hmm. be very, they would be assholes, but eventually they would start. They're only there for develop, a month or so, right? They would yeah. develop a rapport with the Palestinians who are imprisoned and then they would be out and then there'd be a new group of bastards who come in and then that cycle would repeat. And the point of all of that was to keep, I think, uh, well, as Sako tells it, I think it's important to, to, to emphasize that everything that's happening here, it is journalism, but it's also very clearly viewed through Sacco's point of view. But the point that Sacco was making is that that the whole purpose of these prisons was to keep the Israelis from humanizing the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. You see a, a growing cynicism by Sacco, like as he tells the story, more tea, more tea, another story. There's a time when he's talking to an old man. He's like, come on, come on I got to get to my next interview because he's just like trying to get through things over two months. And even in the narration, he catches his own cynicism and then something happens. I, I, at least in the narrative for me as a reader, something would happen because you're feeling that cynicism. It's almost too much and you become numb to it. There, there's another interesting moment Towards the end of the book, right, after Sacco spent a lot of time in occupied territory and he goes back to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. to meet up with some friends. Yeah. And he's talking to two Israeli girls and the gentle pushback of it. And Sacco, having just spent time in the occupied territory, is pushing on them for their complicitness. And the pushback from them, it's just, it's just very interesting. I don't even want to comment on it. It's just people are tired of it. But at the same time, it's like, 
it's hard to draw equivalencies, right? But as I think about black people in America, right? George Floyd was when the rest of us fucking woke up to it, right? But I think about apartheid in South Africa, like the people were living it, but something had to change for the rest of us to wake up. The question is, will anything change? Because, and I don't use the word lightly, it feels like an apartheid state. Yeah, well, it is, isn't it? So one of the things that really struck me is you see very clearly how these institutions, these laws are built to oppress people. Actually, not built to just to oppress people, but it legitimized the imp- oppression. There was that episode where they were talking about torture, and the Israelis brought in a judge to look over the treatment of this some one of the guy Palestinians. in and out over like a month, right? Right, and, and he's like, "Well, yes, they did go too far, and they should be, I don't know, punished or something like chastised for that." But it was necessary but send it back for the anyway. state, right? So that actually legitimizes. Uh, torture by wrapping this rule of law around it. And that's actually incredibly horrifying to me because you might want to say, well, okay, it's just it's these army, you've got some bad seeds in the army, but no, you, you bring in a judge to really look at it and say, oh, no, 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 this is the be all end all. We're going to publicize this. They went a little too far, but it's still necessary. And that's horrifying. And you see this in and out. There's another a sequence about the tomatoes, where they were saying, well, you need like five permits to just go a couple of miles. So you have these institutional structures built, really, to oppress the Palestinians. Yeah, and what's upsetting about this book, man, it's just like, okay, we can rail at apartheid and the civil rights movement and Jim Crow America and Japanese internment, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, and... With some of these things like, oh, those were extreme situations. Oh, that was decades ago. This book, Palestine, it was written in the 90s. But so much of this persists. And it's not like, oh, there's another book that we want to read soon about the Uyghurs in China. We're like, oh, well, that's them. That's Russia. What's Russia's doing? That's what China's doing. But like, this is one of our allies. And and to be clear, the Arab states (laughs) surrounding the Middle East, they're, they're not great either, to be clear, right? Like, you've got what's going on in Saudi Arabia, you've got, or literally even the Palestinian people are like, there's a moment where they're like, all the other Arab states, they're just using us for their own propaganda. They don't care about us. Saddam Hussein's the only one. And it's just like, right. It's just, I don't want to say it's hopeless, but it's frustrating that this is happening so close. This is happening in the now. This is happening with one of our allies as the West uh, and we're letting this happen for convenience versus. Well, yeah. Sako also brings up some of the Palestinian, and, and this actually comes up when during that conversation you referenced with the two women in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. He brings up the, and he Sako does does show the Palestinian factions turning on each other. Mm-hmm. There is a cruelty to each other, and, and as the Israeli women mentioned, of course, the Palestinians are committing crimes against the Israelis. Now, who's ultimately mm-hmm. at fault, right? Now, it's this endless cycle. And I think Sacco also alludes to that. He has this list early on of, okay, these Palestinians were killed, then these Israelis were killed, and these Palestinians, mm-hmm. you know, it's on and on and on. And at the end of the day, it's so difficult to, it's it's impossible to disentangle fault, if you will. That, that's, that's just such a simplification of it anyway. And then, of course, what the women mention is that they're fatigued thinking about all of this, right? They hear it every day. There's nothing new to them. 
and there's a fatigue to having to listen to all of these atrocities. But I think that's what makes Sacco's work so important is that it's not just a list of atrocities. It is a very deep dive into what happened to specific people, who they were before, who they were after, how they responded to it. And they all, it's always surprising, these people who go through this gamut how they come out, how their thinking has evolved, and also Sacco's reaction to it, because this is all overlaid with Sacco's cynical, sometimes sarcastic, sometimes self-effacing narration. Yeah, it's it's easy to get lost in the macro of it, and what Sacco does is he tries yep. to bring humanity, because he goes into the micro of it, the, the individuals, the individual stories, because and I, and I think that's why I feel like this should be required reading. There is another book about Israel that I really want to read by journalist Sarah Glidden and her book, How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. And she's a Jewish American who does her birthright trip back to Israel. And she does confront these things like as a woke, progressive American Jewish woman confronting that and talking to uh, the Jews of Israel. It's complicated. But at the same time, some of it is like some of this is black or white. And why are we complicit in looking the other way out of convenience? And I say this about tons of things, right? Not just Israel-Palestine, but what we did to Native Americans and uh, what we have done to black and brown people in this country. And it's you can't look away from it. That's that's kind of my point. Like the, if we continue to look away from it, the problem's only going to get worse and worse and worse and harder to solve. I don't know if there is a solution or what the solution is, but the solution isn't to get to keep looking away, I guess, because then you continue to commit or allow these atrocities to happen. Yeah, but here's the other issue, and Sacco is looking at it. And one of the things he does bring up frequently is unreliable narration, right? It's about how biased and incomplete his opinion is. He's very, very cognizant of making sure that you know you know that this is just his point of view and it might be flawed mm. it might be wrong it might be a misinterpretation and so i think that was actually really smart of him to i mean, probably maybe the only way he could have really written this because there's no way you can say this is definitively what happened this is definitively the case it's always going to be veiled through you know the compli- the compli- the the situation has just been such a f- so so fucked up for so long, so tangled up for so long, that there's no way to really have an objective view of what's happening. You almost, in a way, have to view each incident in isolation. But of course, each incident that happens is tied to something else that happened before, something else that happened before, something else that happened before. So it's this incredibly, I don't know, I would say that like, yeah, you could, you can look at it at the, at, at the situation and not forget it, but at the same time, your opinion is just going to be so limited and it's almost impossible to appreciate the full scope of the the fuckery here. Well, yeah, look, to be clear, reading a comic book isn't going to solve a <laughs> piece in the Middle East. People have been trying to do it for a while. But I do think part of the solution is understanding both sides because the reason Sako comes into this, mm-hmm. the reason Sako rejects trying to understand the Israeli side is because 
that's what our media diet feeds us one right. side of this. And it, it's really weighted to one side versus another, right? You have so many of the Palestinians cynical at Sako, the journalist in their midst saying, we've had journalists coming here for years and it hasn't changed a goddamn thing effectively, right? Like, and so there, there's a frustration that why is the story not getting out? And does it take a subversive comic book to get the story out because it's not being covered in the mainstream press? It's just like, and again, this is where Sako is a very interesting character and a creator because before Palestine, he, I believe, did some writing about the Balkans. And he's kind of gone back and forth between the Balkans and the Middle East. His more recent book from, I think, a year or so ago was about Native Americans in America, right? And just like one or two very like specific instances. Again, another thing we should read. And I come back to required reading. I'm not saying let this book change your opinion. I'm just saying don't have an opinion without reading a lot more. And and this is a pretty accessible story. Well, I'm curious if Sako has a developed opinion about, you know, because you can see like he's, he's, he's thrust into these situations without really knowing what to expect. And his opinion is to the extent that he ever shares it. He, 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 it almost, in fact, it's interesting when he does share his opinion or it's usually when the Palestinians ask, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And you always mm-hmm. see Joe Sacco always draws himself being like, ah, 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 ah. So I think he's like hyper aware of the inadequacy of whatever it is he personally feels, how he never probably have enough information or understand enough to really have a fully formed opinion. Who does really? He's really interested in cataloging the experiences of the Palestinian people that he interviews. And to the extent that there is an opinion to be formed from this. It's going to be your own opinion, your own opinion being the readers. I think Sacco's only agenda is really kind of show what different Palestinians have been going through. And I also appreciate that he's trying to address different things, like what is the role of feminism here? Do the Palestinians ever turn on each other? Recruitment of, of children mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and what their childhood mm-hmm. is like. So it's not just like torture story after torture story after torture story, though there is actually there's actually this moment where 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 Sacco says, Yes, I always am interested in hearing the details of a torture story, almost mm-hmm. self-effacing. So Sacco actually he he's trying to address a wide breadth of of topics and issues, and you get different fragments of things, but never like really one definitive which it's not the goal. It's it's it seems never Well, yeah, you have to digest it, sit with it. And then zoom out and have a podcast conversation about it, right? Like, or I, I really do think this this is a clock. Like, the, I keep coming back to like the theme of required reading. Like, part of this podcast is great because we read something and then we talk about it with each other, right? And flesh each other's out. And that's where a classroom setting for these things is important, right? Like, this is this is the power of literature in schools, right? Like, would, will this one day be a banned book? I hope not. It's been out long enough, but I can see a world in which. Maybe you shouldn't be carrying this driving around Israel. Because there's even a moment where he's like, shit, at the checkpoint, are they going to look at my journal and see the uh, shit I've been writing and talking yeah. about? Like, and that's crazy. Like, I remember traveling in China and I was reading a Fareed Zakaria book. And I was like, it was about in defense of a liberal democracy. And I remember my wife asking me, she's like, kind of cover that up. Like, literally wrap <laughs> a grocery bag around it while we're traveling in China with this book. And, and it's like, is that where we're heading, right? Versus, no, this this should be read. This should be discussed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. One thing we were talking about 
earlier before we started recording was comics as journalism. And we mentioned that with Sarah Glidden as well. But we've read a lot and over the course of our podcast we read. Hey man, you like you like fictional horror. I like real life horror. <laughs> oh, I, I, I yeah, that's true. You did give us the Ukrainian Russian notebooks, which is another example of uh, right. but of, then you also gave journalism. us the grass and waiting right right there is the grass the waiting was a fictionalized account of but but grass i guess was more reporting and then kent state and my friend Dahmer year, as well year of the rabbit right year of the rabbit right and it's interesting seeing the different the different modes of tackling these issues and how, it's also interesting how a lot of the cartoonists are hyper aware that everything that's depicted is veiled through their eyes, through their point of view, and which inherently mm. makes it slightly unreliable. And I think that's especially true with like cartoon journalism or graphic journalism, whatever. I don't know, even know if there's a term for it. Well, it's 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 interesting, really quick, that the the term cartoon because this isn't like Jim Lee, Alex Ross art, right? Let's do hyper realism of what does Superman look like. No, this is. Mm. The cartoon, even Jean Lun Yang, and we've read a couple of his journalists at him to be at Boxers and Saints, which oh, is right, historical of course. fiction or dragon hoops. But it's that cartoony nature of the illustration. There's still a mastery of sequential art, but that almost disarms you and makes you let your guard down for the the source code to get into your veins. If it's realistic, right, you start thinking about, oh, this should be photojournalism in a way you can't deviate too much from reality if this were like painted like alex ross but because it's a cartoon you i think inherently accept that certain things are going to be exaggerated fair mm -hmm. is going to be did he illustrate it exactly the way he saw it of course not people don't really look like this and i especially think especially sanko man that guy <laughs> he does not draw himself well and i think that that's important right because then you get over this hump of trying to be you know at where I work, there is this focus on, hey, is this true? Can you verify it? And with illustrated journalism, there's less of that pressure. It's really more about, I think, not to say that the incidents that people talk about didn't happen, but really the focus is really more on the emotional truth of, okay, mm -hmm. so this happened. How do you feel about it? Joe Sacco is going through these different refugee camps covered in mud and the way he illustrates it, you feel it. You feel how dirty it is and how uncomfortable these things are and how claustrophobic it, it is. Is that, you know, a realistic depiction? Is that the most, is it an accurate depiction? I don't know, but it's something that makes you feel as if you are there. And that, that in and of itself makes it incredibly effective, more effective, I think, than if you were just reading a, a news article or if you were looking at a photo. Well, again, it, it's a way to break through the clutter. It's subversive in so many ways, right? The subversive in the way you can pick it up as a comic book and have a, enjoyable is the wrong word, but uh, an entertainment-like experience as you're consuming it. You can take it at your own pace. It's not prose. It's but And again, it's also subversive in the sense that it gets around traditional journalism tropes, the clickbaity nature of it. Is this a bestseller? Maybe. I don't know. Will people listen to this podcast and go read it? Maybe. But like, I, again, this is where I think cartoon journalism has a real edge, even historical fictions, right? Like Boxers and Saints and uh, The Waiting. Like, I think there's still, there's a message. There, there's a message. There's sometimes a historical context that is true that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise, that, that wouldn't have been accessible to many people. Why is that? Well, I don't know. It's Jen Wang said, right? Remember when she was talking about the, the prince and the dressmaker, she was like, I want to make a book that someone could fool their dad into letting them buy. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It almost disarms you initially. And then once you get in, it just it cooks you. I don't know. I don't actually know if that's accurate. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a little harder to like uh, sneak this one into into their reading library because it's called Palestine. You know what you're getting into when you read it. But yeah, it's still, um, I don't know. Another thing uh, worth saying, like we talk about it's not just all torture porn. It is, there's these nuanced human stories. And something Sako really illustrates well, and again, I have a soft spot for it, probably because I do have kids. But there's the moments when he's talking to children. There's that moment with the 10-year-old girl who just won't stop peppering him with questions about what his life is like outside of of occupied territories. So she's like, "Are they, do these yeah. factions not exist where you live? Can you do this? Do you not live with your entire family? You live far away from me. And these, believe it or not, these are somewhat innocent questions that I've had kids in foreign countries ask me. But through the context of a girl living in occupied territory who will probably never know anything else, they don't have papers. They can't leave. It's hard. Well, and then Sako's talking about her and his, the buddy of his who's been showing him around says, a girl like that, if I were her parents, I would buy her a computer. And that's really sad because that's, that's not really an option for her. But she is like an incredibly curious, inquisitive kid. And her opportunities are going to be stifled because of, of where she lives. The, where, where she had the misfortune of being born, right? Yeah, and, and the fact that she's Palestinian in Israeli-controlled territory. <sighs> yeah, this is probably the second or third book of his that I've read over the years. And What else have you read? I have uh, not read Sako before. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so believe it or not, I actually, again, this is accidental discovery at the library. You go to a library and you don't, want to read all the Marvel and DC stuff and shelved with all the other graphic novels or these things and you judge a book by its cover. So the first Sokka book I actually read was Footnotes on Gaza. I recently, last year, I read Paying the Land, his book about Native Americans. I've skimmed most of Safe Area Gorjada, which is his book about the Balkans. And he's actually also done another book, I believe, about Sarajevo. Not just The Fixer, but I picked up his stuff over time because... It's just an interesting snapshot into it with historical context. You're going to get, and I walk away knowing more about something than I would have before, right? It's funny, years ago, my wife and I were in Croatia, right on the, the Serbian border, and we were in one of their national parks, which was the site of pretty intense fighting. And I'm telling my wife this, she's like, oh, you read that in The Lonely Planet, right? Before we drove up here. I was like, no, I actually read that in a comic book about two years ago. So it's... uh. It's kind of nuts. But I, I, just, I, I love that this this work exists and other people are taking on the mantle. He's not the only person telling stories like this. I just want to just say how beautiful Sako's art often is. I don't, he has these splash pages where he's depicting the refugee camps. They are incredibly detailed and just do such a, a wonderful job just conveying, um, you know, the 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 squalor that exists and well it's like way... page 147 like it's like a where's waldo but a very dark and tortured where's waldo <laughs> very dark like that's your that's your tagline for this episode a very dark and tortured where's waldo <laughs> but even beyond his splash pages yeah it's he's so enviable as a artist there's this like frantic nature to the angles and even like yeah. the, the not just the perspectives of the composition shots that he makes but Literally, like, the angles of his text boxes 
are stressing me out as I'm reading yeah, that. Like, he, I, he, what, I really actually like that, right? Because so yeah, we didn't yeah. actually even talk about how he tells the story. Um, it Yeah, he has these like little bits of text or sometimes longer bits of text, but yeah, he, and he twists the caption boxes. And I think that just does a, a wonderful, like it just, as you said, it stresses you out to read. It feels like there's so much happening. You're bombarded. You have to keep your focus. Keep pace. Yeah. Keeps changing. Yeah. And, and in a way that's very much like, his experience in Palestine. There's like always so much shit that happens and it's hard to keep track of everything for him. And I think he's, you know, conveying that through his, not just through his art, but also in the way he handles the word balloons. I think people often forget that the word balloons, and the dialogue and the captions are very much as, as, as important a part of the design of the comic as like the panels and the actual images. Yeah. There's even a moment, I can't recall exactly what was happening, but like the police were cracking down on a protest and he's like in the thick of it. And mm. you see that frantic narration of where he's like, my teeth are chattering. I got to get it for the comic. I got to get this. I got to stay here and watch this for the comic. And it's like, and that's the only way he's surviving. It's just, there's, it's, it's really interesting. It's more often than not, Sako doesn't portray himself as a character, but usually at the beginning of the story time or the beginning of the moment, he shows up. And and it happens intermittently enough that you look forward to those moments because he has been narrating and you want to see how he's holding up because he is your lens. He is the everyman through which you're experiencing this with. Yeah. And there's also this attempt to ingratiate themselves to there's this moment, still one of the boys, right, where he's hanging out with these Palestinians and they're just making these jokes and he's trying to and he's tra- oh, also yeah, making these yeah. jokes to, to fit in They're a little bit misogynistic. And he's, you know, in a way, he's criticizing himself and the way he's going about getting these stories. There's an earnestness to him. There's a haplessness to him. What's interesting about that one moment, though, is he purposely puts it in to punctuate the end of the feminism chapter. Oh, you know, that's a great. Yeah. Yeah. He tells this whole story about the women's plight in Palestine and how it is a lesser part of the impetata. And I'm not even sure if I'm saying that correctly, but like and. At the very end, he shows himself sitting around with three men making these kind of offhand misogynist jokes. And it's like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? His decision to undercut himself. And it, it's, it's uncomfortable, right? You're trying to cut through all of the mess of this really fucked up moral situation and trying to make sense of it. And I think there's this danger as a journalist. You're, you're almost like putting yourself above it. The voice of reason as it were, which is a bit of an arrogant position to try to put yourself in. And so he has this moment where he's interrogating the role of feminism in Palestine. And then, of course, he purposely undercuts himself with that moment with the two guys where he's making these jokes. It almost says, okay, I'm not the authority here at the end of the day. Still one of the boys. It, it, in a way, it also makes you trust him more because he's showing his own weakness his own vulnerability I mean, he does this throughout right he says well ah i gotta get more conflict you gotta have conflict if you're gonna have a great graphic novel it's almost acknowledging his own weakness his own bias in trying to get this story ironically it makes him a little bit more in a way more reliable as a narrator you know when somebody can acknowledge their own weakness you tend to trust them more yeah and exactly he's establishing trust as a credible narrator and it, it's a subtle breaking of that fourth wall. And he doesn't do it with a wink and a nod. He does it in a very self-deprecating way. He does it, does it in, the, in the way the stories are ordered, which, I, yeah, that was a great observation. So, Ryan, I got to ask, would you recommend this to someone? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 an incredibly important book. Again, I think Joe Sacco, he's one of those cartoonists that I was very aware of, but never read. And I think in large part, I was, when his stuff was coming out, I was not really into reading about Palestine. Mm-hmm. I was into reading about Spawn. So <laughs> he was somebody I, I knew about, but never bothered to pick up. And I, I'm glad I did because the story, he tells these really compelling, awful stories. He shines a light onto something that I understood only in the abstract. And, they, and I still only understand it in the abstract. But I feel right. I've learned a little bit more about it. I've seen how people were genuinely affected. And he humanizes people who are, by and large, seen as statistics. And, and that's important, right? It was one yeah. of the reasons why I think grass was so compelling also, right? It, it, it depicted people who's really, really depicted and told the story of people whose stories often aren't told. And I think Sacco does that with Palestine. Yeah, the thing I absolutely, of course, would recommend it. That's why I brought it to this pod. But something I've been struggling with as we've read a lot of these heavier works is what's the right age for people to read it? Because I really do think... You should make kids read things before they're ready to read them. And not my daughter who's six, but like, I don't think you need to be a 17 or 18 year old to read it. And I'll tell you a story about that in a second, because I think the biases of the world will creep in on you too fast, what your parents think, what the media tells you. And there's books like this or People's History of the United States that the sooner you read them, the better, because then when the traditional narrative is thrust upon you, you can be like, well, yeah, but what about? And, and the story I want to tell you is about March, right? Like another book I really want to read on this podcast by the late Congressman uh, John Lewis and Andrew Iden. But I bought March, the trilogy slipcase edition for my nephew for Christmas this past year. My nephew is 10. And I bought him in the past books like Bone and I'm going to buy him Usagi Yojimbo this year. I'm really excited about it. But my sister just implicitly trusts that whatever Uncle Ruman buys her son is going to be fine. And my nephew's a really smart kid and he's half black, half Indian. And he devoured the book like he does every comic I send him. But it left him with more questions <laughs> that he had to bring to his mom and dad. And I got an un- a frustrated phone call from my sister. And I apologized profusely. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I-, I guess maybe he wasn't ready. But I've been thinking a lot about this, Ryan. Like, at what age should kids be reading this? Like, And this is the controversy we have in America right now. Should books like Genderqueer be in the library? I think they should, right? Now, should they be required reading? Maybe, maybe not, right? But it's like we get to greater empathy and understanding if people read this a little bit before they're ready or before we're ready for them to read it. Like, I've been thinking a lot about this topic because I have friends, kids, and nephews and nieces who are coming of age, and what's the right time to get this? I can't keep buying... There's only so many bone graphic novels, right? Yeah. There is an infinite amount of Usagi Yojimbo, which even that has some dark stuff, but it's fiction and it's rabbits, so it's okay. I don't know. I don't. Well, look, I'm not really an authority on kids not having any. My instinct would be to give them the book when they start asking questions, I suppose, because the subject is something that they have started to think about. And maybe now's the time to introduce a, a, a different perspective than, than what they were getting in the media or from YouTube or from whatever. Um, 
But I don't know. I don't know if that's like a hard and fast rule. And I also feel it, obviously it, it depends on the kid, their maturity level, and then the the extent to which you're you're willing to have a conversation with them afterwards as well. If you just give them Palestine <laughs> and you're just like, all right, <laughs> have a good we'll one, enjoy it. it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. So, so are you willing to talk to them about it? Maybe that's something else that you need to consider. But I think the real question is, when are you going to give them Junji Ito? <laughs> a little bit later. Here's what's funny. Junji Ito's got nothing on Josako, and I would rather give Josako to kids sooner. Yeah. This podcast is going to get one of us canceled, Ryan. Well, what? We'll, we'll, we'll go down in flames together. Why not? We started this podcast together. Let's, let's end it together in an explosion. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.
拜。